All right, well, let's go ahead and we will open in a word of prayer and we will get started. Father, I thank you so much for the wonderful privilege it is to join our hearts together here this morning to be able to focus on your word, to consider what you have for us in your word this morning. I pray that you would help me to be able to speak with clarity and passion for this very important topic of worship. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, give understanding and insight and excitement, conviction to the heart of every woman that is here this morning as well. I pray that we would desire more and more to live in a manner that honors and glorifies you through our worship and that we would more and more understand what this means. And Lord, we confess that we wrestle to worship. We we wrestle to worship well because we're so distracted by the, the desires of our flesh and by all the glittering wonders that this sinful world has to offer. Lord, I pray that we would become more and more intentional in our focus and devotion to you, that we might proclaim your gospel to the nations, that we would live lives that are worthy of the gospel, lives that are filled with adoration and obedience to you, with hearts that truly desire to worship you. In your name we pray, amen. So I'm going to open this morning with a bit of a, well, always some sort of an illustration. And um, I think probably many of you know who Taylor Swift is. Why would I bring up Taylor Swift? (laughs) But there's a reason, especially when we're talking about worship. Oh, my goodness. Taylor Swift. Okay, so here we go. So in case you don't know who she is, Taylor Swift is a multi-Grammy award-winning American singer and songwriter. Having sold over 2 million records globally, Swift is one of the best-selling musicians, the most streamed female artist on Spotify, and the only act to have five albums with first-week sales of over 1 million copies in the U.S. Okay, does that just not boggle your mind a little bit? Five of her albums sold in one week. A million copies in the U.S. Okay, so we're going to keep going. And this is a little bit of a longer uh, explanation, illustration here. But that's because I want you to really see what, I guess, other people are thinking about her, especially in this topic. So in a recent article by Blake Glosson, a writer for the Gospel Coalition, he endeavored to instruct Christians spiritually by pointing them to who? God? No, no, Taylor Swift. The article, which was titled Seven Things Christians Can Learn from Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, created such a stir on social media that it was very quickly removed from the TGC website, as it should have been. But before the post was deleted, other bloggers copied portions of it, and actually I found one whole copy of it, and proceeded to comment on it. Even though his article created a negative response from many Christians, and rightly so, I want to take a moment this morning to look at some of the things that he highlighted in his article. So, and that is, like I said, specifically because we're thinking about the topic of worship this morning. So my goal is to horrify you. That's the point. That's why I'm going to uh, present this to you. So that's on one hand. But on the other hand, I also want you to consider who or what you worship. Because some of us, especially those of us in the older generation, we look at that and go, we have other issues. (laughs) So (laughs) we need to be thinking and considering the things in our own lives and our own hearts. So I'm going to give you the seven points in the article. Number one, we were created to be seen and known. Part of what makes Taylor's music so powerful is that it leaves many saying, she gets me. Many of her lyrics perfectly encapsulate their emotions and experiences and even help them understand themselves. The Eras Tour allows fans to draw near to the one person who seems to really know them. The Joy Swifties, her followers are called Swifties, The joy Swifties feel in Taylor's presence reflects the joy of drawing near to the only one who knows and loves us perfectly. One, capital 
oh there. So she's referring to God. So what does she say? Or what does he say? It reflects the joy of drawing near to God who knows and loves us perfectly. So he's comparing Taylor Swift to God. Number two, we were created to image greatness. Swifties appreciate Taylor's beauty more because of each other's imitations. Taylor's dresses become more visible when worn by her followers. Through Swifties, the world saw Swift. One of the greatest joys and privileges given to Christians is to put on Christ, to put his sparkling attributes on display to a watching world. We were created to shimmer as jewels on the crown of Christ's head. Number three, this one's pretty self-explanatory, so I'm not going to take the time to read what he has under it. Number three, the object of our greatest affection will be more beautiful than we ever imagined. So, of course, he's referring to her beauty and God's beauty. Number four, we were created for reciprocal enjoyment with the object of our greatest affections. Taylor goes to great lengths to emphasize how much she enjoys her fans. It's not like Swifties love seeing Taylor while she only lets them see her. Happiness is reciprocal. Believers, how much believers, how much more Christ rejoices in you, and not as a number in a stadium full of faces, but as close as a bridegroom who rejoices in his bride. Your living is a true and constant equipment of divine joy. Your presence causes the heart of Christ to leap for joy. Seeing you made Jesus smile. Number five, we were created for transcendent belonging and community. Many Swifties marvel at the deep sense of belonging they experience connecting with countless countless others who share the same object of admiration. The sweet connection transcends cultural background, socioeconomic status, personality, age, and time. Through one man, many are united. The temporary bond felt in Eris, the tour, points to the eternal bond within the body of Christ. Only the Christian community is united, nurtured, and united by one sinless and eternal head. While the various swift seasons brought together many generations of fans, Christ brought together thousands of generations of God's people. Number six, peti- oh, excuse me, pettiness turns to gratitude in the presence of beauty. Every Eris show includes two decade-long fans, recent followers, and everything in between. Some purchase tickets months in advance. Others scoop them up minutes before the show. Yet once inside, no one says, how come she got in? Everyone was too enthralled to see Taylor to have such petty thoughts. Heaven will consist of lifelong Christ followers and deathbed converts, yet none will feel robbed or embittered. All will overflow with the joy and gratitude simply to be in Christ's presence. We don't care how long people have been fans of Taylor Swift. We're not upset if someone's new Swift, a new Swifty or an old Swifty. We just are all so happy when everyone got to come and enjoy heaven. Oh, I mean concert. That's his writing. Number seven, we were created for unadulterated eternal happiness. It's hard to explain how I felt when I woke up the morning after I saw Taylor Swift. The best I can describe describe it is sad happiness. For all the happy anticipation leading up to the show, the sad realization that it's over taints my joy. Our souls were created for perfect and eternal joy, which is found in Christ alone. In your presence, so he's quoting Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are eternal pleasures. And then he concludes with this. Only one is worthy of worshipful praise. And he's talking about God here. Praise of praise is appropriate and pleasing, but no creature, including Taylor Swift, deserves worshipful praise. Worshiping a creature rather than the creator will inevitably harm us, but there is one for whom our souls were created to worship. Worshiping him alone leads to true and eternal life. Okay, we are getting massive mixed messages here in this article. 
So he ends, as you saw, on a positive, even biblical note. That last paragraph is true. We must recognize that worshiping the creator should never begin, however, by comparing God to the created. So he's starting from her and then saying she should lead us to worshiping God. On the one hand, he concludes by telling us that only God should be worshipped, but throughout his entire article, he admits to and even encourages the worship of Taylor Swift. If the godless idolatry of Taylor Swift is the example by which we should learn to worship God, we are in big trouble. But here is the thing. Taylor Swift is worshipped by millions across our country and in the church. This should be appalling to us. We have essentially diminished the superior wonder, the awesome magnificence, the majestic holiness, and the transcendent glory of God, our creator and savior. This is shameful and absolutely appalling. How can we look at a godless, sensual woman and compare worship of God to her? But even worse, how can we worship her rather than the glorious God who made us and saved us? Perhaps you are not a Taylor Swift fan, but it is important for all of us to consider the person or object of our worship. Is God the ultimate object or person of your worship? We all have to consider that. And we don't just consider it today and then move on with life. We consider it every day. And we have to consider it more than every day. We have to consider it every single moment of every day. Because when we find ourselves sinning, what is that indicative of? My worship has changed. Because all of a sudden, I have elevated something I want above who God is. And my worship then has transferred to an idol instead of God. And I am now in sin as I pursue my idol. This is massively important. So as we begin here, I'm going to define worship. And if you read uh, Martha Peace's chapter this week, then you obviously will have read this because I'm going to read what she defined worship as. And then I'm also going to give you another definition after that. So worship is not outward pomp, traditions, candles, or chants. It is extolling God's worth. It is expressing through words, thoughts, or music, adoration of God most high. It is living a life of... And then she says, because of God's mercies, as a holy and pure sacrifice that desires God's will and pleasure more than, your, more than you desire your own. It does occur on Sunday when we come to church is what she's referring to, when we worship together corporately. But it is also ongoing in our hearts and outward actions every day. It is a preview of the magnificently grand worship that is occurring even now in heaven. So I felt like that was a great definition of worship. But here I'm going to add to this just a little bit. So worship is also defined as honor paid to a superior being. It means to give homage, honor, reverence, respect, adoration, praise, glory to a superior being. And in a Christian context, we simply apply that to God. We bow before God. We prostrate ourselves before God. We bow in respect and honor before God, paying him the glory due his superior character. Essentially, Worship is giving. It is giving honor and respect to God. And what is part of our issue? Is we so often want to get. And so we focus on what we can get. And think about even so many people's attitude toward coming to church on Sunday. This is where we corporately join our hearts together to give honor and glory and reverence and respect to God. But how many of us have at one point or another come to church looking for what we can get? I wish somebody else would reach out to me. I wish somebody would say hello to me. I'm just sitting over here in my corner and nobody's talking to me. What have we just done? 
we have created an idol because we have ceased to come to the, to the, the place where the believers meet, the body of Christ, where we are to give worship to God. And we have transferred that to ourselves that we would be worshiped. Total idolatry. And we have to consider our own hearts. What is our purpose? What are we seeking to do? You can see how it slips in so easily. Well, I'm PMSed. Well, I'm tired. I didn't get any sleep last night. Well, I've been busy all week long. I just don't have time this morning. I don't have the energy. If people, somebody's just gonna have to come say hi to me. We do it. We laugh because we do it. But we should not. Because it is not focusing on the worship of the one true God. And that's one example. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to begin by giving you a couple of examples of worship. And it's on your, your outline, but it's like the, the pre-outline. <laughs> so I gave it to you in one and two, and then I didn't even put the subpoints with numbers or letters or anything. Um, but that's just so that you can keep track of this for later if you wanted to. So examples of worship, and I'm only going to give you two. There's many, many, but I'm, we only have time for a couple here. So there are two examples that I want to look at, but I do want you to notice, and we're going to read these portions of scripture, and as we do it, I want you to notice the contrast between the person who is worshiping and the other person that is in the passage. So actually, if you don't mind, and you have your Bible, and you want to turn to John 12, uh, 1 through 8, that's where we're going to start. And then the second one we're going to look at is 2 Samuel 16, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 6. So we'll begin with uh, the book, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and verses 1 through 8. So number, or, uh, verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about this. So we talked about chapter 11, when Jesus went and raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the very next chapter after that. So immediately it transitions into this. So verse two, so they made him a supper there and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was, was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So the, the cost of this perfume that Mary used was approximately a year's wages. So it was extremely expensive. But I want you to think about this as well. Do you remember how woman's hair is described in scripture? It is her glory. And what did she do? She took what was her glory and she washed what? the filthy, dirty feet of her Savior. And in their culture, feet were the dirtiest thing. It was that, that task was given to the lowliest of slaves. And yet she took her hair and she took this costly perfume and she washed his feet. And keep in mind the time frame of what is going on here. She, Jesus had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And it's six days before the Passover. What happened on the Passover? Jesus was crucified. So this is the time frame of this. And of course, she doesn't know that Jesus is about to be crucified. But she knows he is her God and Savior. And so she is giving the best of what she has because she worships him and loves him. So then moving to the next example, David danced before the Lord as they brought back the Ark of the Covenant. So in 2 Samuel 
chapter 6, <clears throat> starting in verse 14. It says, and David, well, let me, okay, so I need to give you a little bit of, of context here. So David was uh, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem because remember, it had been out, um, away from Jerusalem for a very long time. And this had been since Eli, remember when Eli died, when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, it had never come back to Jerusalem. And so David is rejoicing because here the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God, was coming back to Jerusalem. So he's so excited and so thrilled about this. So that's the context. It says, and David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord and shouting, and the with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Remember, she was married to him, so this is his wife. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So do either of these examples reflect your worship of God? The overwhelming joy that David had that was expressed in dancing before the Lord as he rejoiced in the ark of the covenant coming back or Mary, who was willing to give the very, very best of what she had in worship to her Savior. Although we know mentally and intellectually and even biblically that we should worship God, is that our rightful response to God for who he is? Oh, sorry, and that it is our rightful response. We often become distracted. We forget why we should worship, and we forget how we should worship. We fill our minds with lists of tasks to accomplish. We lose sight of what our priorities should be, and our spiritual gaze shifts from our great God to worldly things. And this, of course, is devastating on many levels. But it is of particular concern if we evaluate our lives and recognize that worshiping God is non-existent in our hearts and lives. If worshiping God is not being accomplished in our lives, yes, we struggle to do that. And as true believers, we are always going to be on a bit of a journey like this as we strive to worship the Lord. But if you evaluate your heart and see that there is not that wrestle to pursue worship of God, you should be concerned. And this is a quote from John MacArthur, and he says this, The reason that it's important to worship is because all of life, both now and forever and eternity, depends on it. Worship is not an addendum to life. Worship is at the core of life. The people who worship God acceptably enter into eternal life. The people who do not worship God acceptably enter into eternal death. So worship becomes the crux. Time and eternity are determined by the nature of the person's worship. How you worship is reflective and determinative in your destiny. Now, there are only two kinds of worship you can offer. You can either offer acceptable worship or unacceptable worship. And the mass of the world offers unacceptable worship. And God will not accept it. The Bible is explicit on this. So understanding the difference between acceptable and unacceptable worship is absolutely critical for us because if we want to worship God as we should, then we need to know what is acceptable to him because we certainly don't want what is not acceptable. So the first one on your outline is acceptable worship. And really what we're doing as we consider the acceptable versus the unacceptable is on one hand, we're evaluating, do I truly know the Lord? And if we can say, yes, I do, then we are evaluating, then am I living a life that is giving acceptable worship to the Lord? 
So under that is acceptable worship aligns with the truth of scripture. So first of all, we need to think according to truth. We cannot expect to please God with our worship of him unless it is directed according to the truth which is laid out in scripture. So coming up with our own ideas of how we should worship causes it to become man-centered and self-exalting. So John 4 verse 24 says this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and what? Truth. We must worship in truth. Where is the only place that we are going to find truth? In the word of God. And I will say too, we have to be so careful of what our opinion is of the worship service. Because when we come into church, it's very easy to go, oh, I don't like this song this morning. Oh, the harmonies are bad this morning. We can begin to nitpick. Oh, I don't prefer it when he prays. We can begin to do that, and that is entirely unacceptable before the Lord. Instead, we look at the word of God, and we go, okay, so what is God's God's guideline for how we should worship. And if what is going on in the service is reflective of God's word, then we align our hearts accordingly and participate in the worship, even if it doesn't fall into our preference. Because when our preference supersedes the worship, what have we just done again? Become idolaters. You can see this terrible snare that we find ourselves in over and over and over again. So we have to worship according to the truth. Now I will say on the flip side of that then, going to a worship service where man is exalted, where we are actually distracted from the worship of the true God by all the dazzling lights, by the fog, by the noise, by all those things, we can be distracted from true worship even by our own emotions. We have to be so careful that we worship God in truth, which is according to his word. So then under that, the next point, acceptable worship involves offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. So Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. As we offer ourselves before the Lord as a living sacrifice to obey his word and be used of him in whatever way he would seek to use us, this is acceptable to the Lord. And that is our goal. So the number two, unacceptable worship. So I'm going to give you three examples here. And of course, there's many more, but I just wanted to at least get you in the vein of thinking about this. So our first is Nadab and Abihu did not treat God as holy. So Leviticus 10, 1 through 3 says this. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. The father of two men who had just been burned by God, just been killed by God because actually Fire came out, but they weren't, their clothes weren't burned. Very interesting. We won't get into that. Anyways, Aaron kept silent because he knew it was true. Their worship was unacceptable because it was not holy before the Lord as God had commanded. So then Cain brought an offering without faith. So that's the next point on your outline. 
So Genesis 4, 3 through 5 says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So then if we look... To Hebrews in the New Testament, this is what we learned from the Hall of Faith. So Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So Abel came in obedience to God by faith, bringing a sacrifice that pleased the Lord, and Cain did not. And even if we look at this in an eternal perspective, Abel had faith. God had given him faith. He was a true believer. Did Cain have any form of faith? No, he did not. He was rebellious against the Lord. So our offerings need to be brought with faith. Our worship must be done with faith. And then the last one here is Uzzah treated God's dwelling, which was the Ark of the Covenant, irreverently. So just to help continue our little um, timeline, whatever you want to call it here. So we looked at David who was rejoicing and dancing when the Ark of the Covenant finally came into Jerusalem. This happens before that time with Uzzah. You remember the, the account of Uzzah. So this is the first time they attempted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and it was a major fail. So start uh, reading in 2 Samuel 6, 3 through 10, it says this. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the son of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Just an interesting fact there, or observation, not fact. It was a new cart. That should count for something, right? It was a new cart? No. Number five, verse five. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood with lyres, harps, tambourines, cassonets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his ear reverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this, or Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So, David had really good intentions, wanting to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But both Uzzah and David sought to worship God according to their own ideas. But it was a new cart they put it on. Their desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem was, as I said, a good desire. But they tried to do it according to their own way. They failed to be obedient to God's instruction, which required the sons of Koheth to transport the ark by carrying it with poles. Remember, they were supposed to carry it on their shoulders with poles, not on a cart. And even though they may have endeavored for this to be a new cart, which would seem respectful to God, it was not what God had required. They failed to be obedient to God's instruction, which required, oh, I already said that. Instead, they did what worked. It seemed like the cart was a good idea. This is pragmatism, right? It seems like it's work. It's going to work. This is the best thing to do because it's the thing that's going to work. So it, or, or we should say it appeared on the front end that it was going to work. Ultimately, it didn't. And that's pragmatism as well, right? Especially in 
our Christianity. We do what seems to work now, but if we watch that path and take it all the way out, we end up in destruction because oftentimes what works in the moment is not what God has called for. Oftentimes it is not. But what, was, but what worked was not what God prescribed, and the consequences were swift and severe because God then killed Uzzah immediately. So how careful we must be when we seek to worship God. Our mainstream American culture has followed this pattern in many ways. They have tried to worship God according to their own standards. They have filled seeker-sensitive churches with fancy stages, lighting and sound equipment and all that stuff. Though it appears to work because it draws up emotion, people seem to be expressing worship to God. It isn't what God has prescribed. God must be worshiped according to his standard, according to truth in his word. So with that very long introduction, we're going to then move into our passage, which is Psalm 96. And we're going to read the whole thing, which is 13 verses. So if you want to turn there, you can do that. So starting in verse 1, it says this. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So this psalm was written as a, wonder, as a worshipful praise to God, a celebration of his character to bring glory and honor to him. It presents a great pattern for us as we consider how to worship by giving glory to God. It instructs us so we know what to focus our thoughts on regarding God. It helps us to think rightly about God, which in turn will lead to praise and worship. As we think rightly, as we think according to the truth of Scripture, it should automatically cause us to desire to give worship to God. Which, remember, keep in mind, worship is giving. And I think that, that that was helpful for me. I had I don't think I have ever thought about worship until I was studying it this week in terms of giving instead of receiving. That helps me to consider my own heart just a little bit deeper, I think, maybe. Am I looking to receive or am I looking to give? So A, on our outline, let the whole earth praise the Lord. And small a under that is declare God's praise. So in our first couple of verses here, it says three times, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. And of course, in the Hebrew, when we have something repeated, what does that mean? I want you to pay attention to this. He's trying to emphasize this. We should be singing to the Lord and singing praise and adoration to him. As we praise the Lord, it should include the beauty of the salvation that he has provided. This should constantly be on our lips from day to day and even moment by moment. This is why we must never lose sight of the gospel. 
Always reminding ourselves of the glorious good news of Jesus Christ that we have received in salvation from God should cause us to continually be worshiping, giving praise and adoration to God. And it is difficult to keep the gospel before our minds all the time, is it not? We have responsibilities. We have life to live. We have all kinds of things that distract us from keeping the gospel at the forefront of our minds all the time. And why is this so critical? Because this is, this is the epitome of what God has done for us to save us from damnation that we deserve And when we see ourselves as not victims as the world would have us believe, oh, poor us, we've been so mistreated. No, no, we are the offender. We have offended a holy God with our sinful rebellion against him again and again and again and again. And in his grace and in his mercy, he has provided salvation for us. And that should cause us to worship him. And from that position of worship, then what do we do? With this attitude of worshiping God and obedience to him, then we love and minister toward one another, encouraging one another to worship this awesome God. But when we lose sight of who God is and what he's done, Remember that quick shift, even in the church service? That's exactly what happens. The quick shift, all of a sudden, it becomes about me, what I want, what I desire. And I have moved myself into the place of God, and now I am expecting to be adored and worshipped, or at least, at the very least, to get my own way. But that should not be where we stay. Even when we find ourselves there, what is the rightful response? Repentance. Always repentance. Oh, Father, forgive me because I have become the idol I am worshiping right now instead of giving glory and adoration and worship to you. It should be our desire then to tell of the glory of the gospel to the remotest parts of the world. So this should be our heart, not only to keep the gospel at the forefront of our minds, but then it should drive us to proclaim it. And this is going to look different for all of us. What are your giftings? What, how has the Lord created you and gifted you within the church? Some are street evangelists, and I love that. Mark do clearly. The man is gifted with evangelism. I would say that's probably not my gift in the same way. And it's not even my, it is my passion for the gospel to go forth, but not in the same way that he would do. But whatever sphere of influence the Lord has given us, this is what we should do to proclaim the gospel. And we should have a heart for missions, for the nations. Perhaps you aren't there and you aren't going. I'm not there and I'm not going. But I should be burdened for those people in the nations that do not know the Lord. And that should drive me to what? Prayer. Do you pray for our missionaries? Do you pray for the nations? I just felt like totally beat up. Like failure, failure, failure. I don't do this to the degree that I should be doing it. I need to keep in mind that this gospel should go to the nations and that is a reflection of my worship of God. Too often the name of the Lord, so this is a quote from Spurgeon. Too often the name of the Lord has been dishonored among the heathen by the vices and cruelties of those who call themselves Christians. May this fact excite true believers to greater diligence in causing the gospel to be proclaimed as with a trumpet in all quarters of the habitable globe. This is so true. Essentially what he's saying is people that are not Christians but claim to be go out into the nations and proclaim a Jesus or a God that is of their own making. It's not the true God. This was my experience as a child. The, The tribal area that my parents went into had first been reached 
by the Seventh-day Adventists. And Seventh-day Adventists preach salvation through works that is not the gospel. And so when my parents went into the tribe, what happened? They came up against people who said they knew Jesus. And they were absolutely resistant to the true gospel. This should burden our hearts, as as Spurgeon is saying here. So then, B is describe God's character. So we're shifting on here. So verse 4 says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So we have there, it starts, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And again, we have another quote here from Spurgeon. He says this, Praise should be proportionate to its object. Therefore, let it be infinite when rendered unto the Lord, because it says, Great is the Lord, and then greatly to be praised. So, because we have an infinite God, then Spurgeon is saying our worship should then be infinite as well. We can't, this is continuing because, of course, I always interrupt every quote. So, continuing the last uh, sentence of his quote is this We cannot praise him, God, too much, too often, too zealously, too carefully, or too joyfully. This should be our desire to continually offer up worship to our God. Psalm 95.3 expresses the same thought. It emphasizes God's greatness by declaring that he is above all the other gods. It says, for the Lord is great and a great king above all gods. The psalmist is drawing a comparison here to those who worship many gods. Their gods were only idols, but his God was the great God and king, the one true God. And that's exactly where our passage moves. And this is a quote from one of my commentaries. It says this, the poet exalts in Yahweh as he alone is the great God and the great king who rules over the whole world. By affirming faith in the Lord, God's people express loyalty to the Lord and deny the existence of any other deity. This is where we should be, denying the existence of any other deity and worshiping only the one true God. And even in the deceptive ways that our hearts continue to create idols, we have to be setting that aside to worship the one true God. So our passage then says, he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. God is above all gods because he is the living God, not made by human hands or by uh, human hands like the idols were, excuse me. So Habakkuk 2, 18 through 20 says this, what profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood. For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to the piece of wood, Awake! And to a mute stone, Arise! And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And Psalm 97, 7 says this, Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. When we find ourselves not worshiping our God, we should be ashamed Not only is God the living God, he is the creator. One of the demonstrations of God being a living God is that he created everything. Unlike idols who are lifeless, blind, deaf, and the creation of someone else, God is the creator. And because he is the creator, it should stir in our hearts a desire to worship and glorify him. And this verse in Nehemiah is so great um, because it it kind of encapsulates that. 
saying that word weird. Nehemiah 9, 5, and 6 says this. Arise, bless the Lord your God forever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. And immediately, what does he do? He goes into creation. You made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. Even as we observe the creation, it should cause us to worship the Lord. So then moving on, capital B, let the nations worship. So A under that is give glory to the Lord. So again, in our passage here, we have the set of three. We have the post... post <laughs> Goodness, I am having trouble talking today. We have the poetic call to ascribe glory to the Lord. And remember, the three times is for emphasis. Ascribe glory to to the Lord. And ascribe means to give. So this just already goes along with what we're talking about. Worship is to give, and we're called here, give glory to the Lord. In the ESV, it says, ascribe to the, the, to the Lord the glory due his name. God is due worship and honor and glory, and this is what we are to be giving him. So Spurgeon says this, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. But who can do that to the full? Can all the nations of the earth put together, discharge the mighty debt? All conceivable honor is due to our creator, preserver, benefactor, and redeemer. And however much of zealous homage we may offer him, we cannot give him more than he is due. If we cannot bring in the full revenue which he justly can't claims, at least let us not fail from want of honest endeavor. Our debt to God will never, we could never repay. It is paid because of the blood of Christ. But we ourselves could never pay that debt. And so our lives should be ones that are continually offering up worship to him. That is the very least that we can do is to live a life of continual worship and honor, giving him glory and reverence always. So be on your outline, small b, worship the Lord. Verse 9 says, worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before him all the earth. And other translations, uh, a couple different other ones, say worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So depending on what you're familiar with, it could be one or the other. Another uh, translation says the splendor of holiness. So there are two considerations here as we think about worshiping the Lord in holy attire or in the beauty of holiness. So uh, we worship him in holiness because... He is holy. So we are to be holy as we worship him. And the other is that he is holy, therefore we worship him. So maybe that wasn't very clear. So first is the acknowledgement of God's holiness. He is holy, therefore we worship him. But we worship but be, excuse me, we worship him because he is holy, but we must also seek to worship, seeking to be holy ourselves in our worship. Remember what we are told in 1 Peter, be ye holy as I am holy. And as we worship the Lord, we should be worshiping him with holy hearts before him. How high and how glorious. So this is another quote, and I'm sorry, I don't know who it is. How high and glorious must be the beauty of this attribute, which is the perfect combination of all his infinite perfections. And he's speaking of holiness here. You see then why this attribute is so awful to us. In man, purity is stained. The beauty is defaced. The harmony is changed into jarring discord. Therefore, this attribute of, of God's holiness is awful to us. 
It is the awfulness of absolute purity in the presence of impurity. It is the awfulness of perfect beauty in the presence of deformity. It is the awfulness of honor in the presence of dishonor and shame. It is the awfulness of holiness in the presence of sinfulness. This should be as we come before the Lord, seeing our sinfulness should cause us to fall on our faces because we are so unworthy in the face of who God is and his transcendent holiness that we cannot possibly fathom because all we have ever, ever known is sin and the curse of sin. And as we grow in our understanding of who God is more and more, that should drive us to worship him. Worship must not be rendered. This is Spurgeon again. I didn't realize how much of a Spurgeon I was quoting. You're getting a lot of him today. Worship must not be rendered to God in a slovenly, sinful, supernatural manner. So this is the other aspect of it. So we have the first part where we worship God because he's holy. Now here's the other aspect of it. And Spurgeon describes this well. He says, worship must not be rendered to God in a slovenly, sinful, superficial manner. We must be reverent, sincere, earnest, and pure in heart, both in our prayers and praises. Purity is the white linen of the Lord's choristers, righteousness in the comely garment of his priests. Holiness is the royal apparel of his servants. So God is holy, therefore we worship him. But this also needs to be our desire is to be holy as we come before him. And the only way that can be accomplished is if we worship him in truth, according to his word. Because it is, if it is anything apart from that, it is of our own making. And this is not holiness. So you see how it connects together. And then our passage says, tremble before, the, before him all the earth. In light of God's holiness, we should fear him. So we have worshiping him and the beauty of his holiness. And immediately our passage turns to tremble before him all the earth. To tremble is to fear the Lord. To have awe and reverence toward him. The bodily frame would be moved to trembling and prostration if men were thoroughly conscious of the power and glory of Jehovah. And this is precisely, of course, what we see throughout Scripture. And I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of people who, when they had visions of God, this they saw this the, the magnificence of this holy God, just a vision of him. And look what it says. So Revelation 1.17, and this is the Apostle John, says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. He saw his Savior, and he prostrated himself because he realized his own unworthiness before his Savior. And then Ezekiel one twenty-eight, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell on my face. This is the rightful response to the holiness of our God. Does that define you? Oh, this is so convicting, because. I, I do not think this defines me even close to the degree that it should. To worship him truly, to be like Mary. And I am, I think our entire culture, for the most part, seems to be the Mary, right? Busy, task-oriented, things to do. But oh, that we would be the Mary to wash his feet with our hair at whatever cost to ourselves. And then C, let creation praise the Lord. This is capital C. So A under that is all of creation will rejoice. And this is Stephen Charnock. 
When God himself makes an oration in defense of his sovereignty, his chief arguments are drawn from creation. That is a very interesting thing to think about. The sovereignty of God naturally arises from the relation of all things to himself as their entire creator and their natural and inseparable dependence upon him in regard of their being and well-being. God is the creator. When we think about this awesome God, it should immediately cause us to think about the creation. And oftentimes that is what God does is he says, Look at my sovereignty and then look at creation, what I have created. I am the creator. You are only the creation. And this is very clear when he speaks to Job. And remember, as Job wrestles through the the difficult trials that have come into his life, and he says, I will argue against God, God then defends his own sovereignty And what does he do? How does he do it? He goes to his creation. And this is what God says, Job 38. And only a couple of verses here, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words with knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. And of course, Job can't, right? So verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And we could go on for the next couple of chapters as God proclaims what he has done in creating. And naturally, As we look at the creation, it should cause us to worship. Oh my goodness, we are about out of time. So I find it interesting to consider that many man-made exhibitions compete for our affection and awe. So often the loud, busy, glittering entertainments of the world distract us from noticing God's glory as it is revealed in creation. So I don't know if you guys have seen this new thing that's just been built in Vegas called the Sphere. It is a prime example of this. Man is always trying to outdo himself in order to draw the gaze of humanity. So I'm going to describe this just briefly to you. And really, I want you to think about this. This is an awesome uh, architectural amazement. But it is nothing compared to the creation of our God. And we need to make sure that we do not allow ourselves to be distracted by the things that man has to offer. So standing over 360 feet tall, the sphere at the Venetian is the world's largest spherical structure and an architectural wonder. With 580,000 square feet of fully programmable LED exterior, it's it's. Um, destined to be the next iconic landmark in the Vegas skyline. The cheapest tickets for the shows start at about $400. From videos being posted to social media, it looks like shows at the Sphere can be breathtaking, probably more than a little nauseating, and undoubtedly expensive to produce. A review in the New York Times says the recent U2 concert alternated between gigantic, trippy visual effects sweeping across the dome display and the more standard concert screen fare of band close-ups. Sometimes things looked absolutely out of control with wild animations spanning the entirety of the screen in ways that must be completely disorienting, disorienting for our lizard brains. People were just losing it. I can't say I blame them. This is supposed to be just breathtaking and wonderful in Vegas. We must be careful not to be so distracted by the glories of this world that we fail to reflect on the glory of God as we see it in his creation. And I appeal to our precious mommies here that you be careful what you expose your children to. Man-made entertainment can have an appropriate place. It doesn't mean that it's all sinful. 
but use it in moderation. Help your children cultivate interest in the beauty of God's creation and always point them to the awesomeness of God as the creator. Don't allow your children to be so taken up with all the man-made wonderful things that we see in our culture so that that's what they crave because that will not lead them to the foot of the cross. Prioritize God's creation. And it's not wrong to see those things, but be careful. So our passage concludes by looking ahead at the millennial rule of Christ. So small b, Christ is coming to reign. Because we look to the eternal reign of Christ, our hopes, aspirations, goals, and desires are fixed outside of this temporal world. By looking to the millennial kingdom, we can respond rightly to the trials, heartaches, disappointments, and temptations we face. Because the glory of Christ's eternal reign is more significant to us than our own comforts and pleasures here. The fact that we have been saved to one day live with Christ while he reigns in sovereign righteousness and faithfulness should solicit from us praise to God and an ever-growing desire to do everything for his glory. Because he has conquered death and paid the debt for our sin, we will reign supremely. Uh, and, and he will reign supremely. We ought to be consumed with worshiping him. Always that should cause us to desire to worship our God. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for your wonderful word. Lord, I pray that even in a very, very small way, we would consider the importance of worshiping you, that we would grow, even if it's in a small measure, that we would continually be seeking to worship you as you deserve. And Lord, we know that we can never worship you fully to the degree that you deserve because you are so awesome, so magnificent, so holy. But Father, we thank you for the privilege that you give us to even have the opportunity. Help us to live in thankful gratitude to you for what you have done. In your name I pray, amen.